Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, the podcast in which I ask those from in and around the comedy world what comedy means to them. We discuss topics such as culture, diversity, triumph and adversity, starting as a comic after leaving university, laughter, trauma, finding comedy in drama and realising how hard it is to make a joke about a llama. I love talking to people in and around the comedy world about comedy and if you'd like to hear what they have to say as much as I do, then please remember to like, subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. Sometimes a comedian needs determination to succeed, sometimes it's simply raw, unbridled talent, and sometimes the vigour and naivety of youth. My guest on this episode has all this and more, and while not what you might imagine of a working-class northern club comic, it is her northern tenacity and working-class down-to-earth attitude that has endeared her to audiences to the extent that in a 10-year career starting at just 18, she's been twice nominated for an Edinburgh Award and supported the likes of Catherine Ryan, Jason Manford and Kerry Godleman. It's stand-up comedian Lauren Patterson. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me for this. It's it's uh it's an honor. No problem. If you're happy, we can just jump right in. Perfect. That sounds good. Okay, so the the obvious first question for me is uh you've made such an early start in comedy. You know, you started comedy and university pretty much yeah. at the same time. I mean, how did how did you get into comedy? How did that start for you? So I've always loved stand up. Like when I think back to being like 15, 16, you know, and other people might be spending their money on like gig tickets. Mm. I suppose I was doing that, but I was also like always going to see comedy. Um, so, because we've got quite a few like nice venues in Newcastle, so I, like sometimes on my Facebook memories, it'll come up from when I was like a teenager, and I've been going to see like Peter Cave, Rod Gilbert, John Richardson, Russell Howard, like all in the space. Usually this time of year, but I don't know when this is going out, but this kind of October autumn time when all the comics tour, and I loved watching it, and I became very. I've got a very I don't want to say addictive personality, but I get fixated on things quite easily. So mm-hmm. I think the more I enjoyed it, the more I became fascinated by it. And I also did drama. I've done drama since I was like 12, 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it just seemed a very like, not necessarily an easy thing to get into, but I already had that performance bug. And I was like, well, hang on. There's nothing to say that I couldn't have a go at this. And then my drama group um, I was in like a little youth theatre. They started up some like comedy workshops. Right. And I thought, what a brilliant thing to offer for. So that youth group was for 11 to 25. Right. And now looking back, I'm like, what an amazing thing to offer for like young people. Um, and that really got us the bug. I was like, I love this. So I waited till I was 18 because mm-hmm. obviously I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to. So I was 15 when I did that. Mm-hmm. And then I waited till I was 18 to sort of start stand up properly. Because all I could think was, am I going to be allowed in the venues you know what I mean I was like if I try and start stand-up now as like a 16 17 year old our place is even going to let me in so I didn't really know where to start but um I made this project when I, I did I did for an A-level an extended project still right. this day I don't know what that is and I left school 10 years ago and I did mine on stand-up and I remember I made this map of the British Isles and I put like um, bits of thread and pins and did comics from all over the UK yeah. and then I wrote like essentially an accompanying guide to go with it which probably was copy and pasted off Wikipedia um, <laughs> but made this like guide to British stand-up comedy and I remember seeing on a few people's like bios that had written up that they entered so you think you're funny and that was for comedians who'd been going less than a year and I was like yeah. Well, I've been going less than a year because I've not even done a gig <laughs> <laughs> which I do think if I was in this position now, 
I'd be like, oh, I'll wait till I've kicked a year and then I'll start. And because of the the naivety and confidence of an 18 year old who's quite literally got nothing to lose. I was like, I'll just enter that. I entered that just for the stage time. And I was in my heat in Newcastle. I can't remember too many people who were in it, but I can remember, I don't know what he's up to now, Lost Voice Guy. I don't think he really went on to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the first time I met him was my first ever gig. So I've been on this really nice journey, like with Lee, which I love. And I've loved watching his like star rise as well. Um, but yeah, I entered that just for the stage time. And I was thinking, yeah. well, if I've done a gig, that's, you know, the hard bit out of the way. And I was at Tea in the Park, a music festival in Scotland. I got the phone call to say I got through to the semi-finals. And I was like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I didn't do it to get to the finals. I did it for stage time. And they were like, well, you're in the semi-finals. So that was, I think, the first time I'd been up to the fringe. Because obviously mm. the, the semi-finals are at the fringe. And I just... Again, I think the first time as a comedy fan going to the Fringe, you're just like, oh, this is a whole world I can get stuck into. So yeah. that was all That was all the summer before I started university. So the gig was the May, the semifinals were the August. I started uni in the September. And I remember, um, obviously, once I'd found out I was in the semifinals, I was like, I'm going to have to try and get some more gigs. So I got in <laughs> touch with The Stand, and they gave us a spot on Red Raw, in the July, and that was like my introduction to the stand. Yeah. Spots on like a couple of other little local gigs, but it essentially put us in a really good position. That from September, I was like, "Oh no, I, I like this, and I want to, I yeah. want to do it." And I didn't do many gigs that first year because I was first year of uni, so I was also right. like, "Getting pissed is top priority." <laughs> um, so I probably I could. I don't think I would have to take my socks off to count how many gigs I did in that first year, if you know what I mean, from like May 2012 till about like sort of September 2013. Didn't really gig that much. And then I remember going into my second year of uni and being like, right, no, I want to push this a bit more. I'm going to start traveling for gigs and looking for gigs further afield and really like pushing it. So I I think my second year in comedy, well, technically my second year in comedy was really my first proper year in comedy. If I was one of those sneaky acts, I just wouldn't have counted that first year because I did about six gigs. So like, I would have just been like, no, I started in um, September 2013, but I've always been like, I just, I'm just i too honest for my own good. I was like, no, that's when I did my first gig. That's when I started. And I just, I was forever like spending my student loan on mega buses and yeah. um, easy jet hotels. I don't know if you've ever been fortunate enough to... <laughs> I've never been in one, I'm aware of them. I've stayed, oh, I've stayed in... The one in Edinburgh, I've stayed in the one in Croydon because when I used to gig in London, that was like the cheapest place for us to stay. And uh, you had to pay extra for a room with a window. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously being like that young and having literally having like no money, I was like, well, I don't, I don't need daylight. That's fine. <laughs> and I used to spend my student loan on like these horrible, just like grotty little hotels with no windows so I could do stand up. And I look back and I think it's not many... Uh, students like you Lauren I think um, most people tend to you know student comics will join the comedy society and maybe just gig in the local area not this idiot nah but I think it did is really good I think it proved from day one I had the right work ethic and I had the right the right attitude which is if I want this I'm gonna have to go out and yeah earn it but yeah, yeah definitely was there a combination of like this this focus and sort of naivety that you just sort of go, oh yeah, I'll just do that, it'll be fine? I think so. And for me, it was all very fun. Um, yeah. So I was like, well, I'm enjoying it. And I never thought it could be a career. 
because in my stupid little head, I was like, there's the comedians on telly. Yeah. And I didn't realize, like, my sort of introduction to the comedy circuit was when I started stand up. So all I'd seen was like telly comedy. And then suddenly this whole new world opened up to us. And I was like, oh, so you can make a living from comedy without being on telly. And people were like, most comedians make a living <laughs> without being on telly. And yeah. I remember someone saying, was that the stand one of the other acts? I was dead young, dead new. This is before I'd even done a paid gig. And he's like, you do know you could make a living from this? And I was like, are you for real? <laughs> and I got my first like paid gig offer from the stand. And I probably only got about 20 quid or something. I got given a five minute spot on a weekend. Hmm. And I remember being like, oh my God, this is, this is incredible. It's like someone's given me 20 pound for a gig. Where's now? <laughs> Someone trying to book me for 20 quid. I'd be like, eh, have a little rethink about that. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously at the time, even to get 20 pound, I was like, this is amazing. This is brilliant. And yeah. then it taught, it taught us the value of it a little bit as well. Cause I was like, well, if I do want to get paid for this, yeah. I'm going to have to be good. I'm going to have to work hard and I'm going to have to prove to people that I deserve to be paid for it. And yeah, yeah. I, oh God, I remember getting that first paid gig offer and you're just like, I've made it. Can't <laughs> wait to spend this uh, 20 pounds <laughs> on a hotel room with no window. <laughs> it's a week away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it wasn't long after that. You've only been doing it a few years and you already start, you know, that you're in the finals. You've got the uh, yeah Total Student Comedy Awards, BBC New Comedy Awards. Yeah, there was a sort of a window where I think, obviously I then had a lot of comedy competitions and sort of got to the semis or whatever, I got wherever. Yeah. But then, because obviously most of the, the rules constantly change on what the eligibility is for these competitions. But when I was doing it, it tended to be like a five-year sort of yeah. time limit on it and it was sort of coming up to around the three four year mark where I'd obviously found my voice and found my groove hmm. that was this period where I was just in like every I feel like every weekend I was in a different competition final um <laughs> and I remember doing I think I might have done the BBC new comedy awards in yeah. 2016 I did I got the finals of that and I was like mm -hmm. that's it no more competitions like it, it took us three goals, four goals to get to the final. And I was like, oh, to me, that's yeah. the most prestigious one. And I was like, you've got to the finals of that. This was 2016, yeah, so I'd been gigging like four, yeah. And I was like, maybe like call it a day with the competitions. You've got the finals of um, like a lot of the important ones. And then yeah. I think it might have been the Natties, possibly. Possibly mm -hmm. the Natties, maybe Leicester Square. I can't remember which one, but I entered that after... Edinburgh that year and got through and I was like nah I'll get one more we'll do one more <laughs> and I remember the final was in the January I can't remember whether it was the Natties or Leicester Square but I didn't place and it was the first time I'd ever been disappointed not a place I was used to not placing hmm. but I really really felt like I deserved to place and anyone listening to this who doesn't know is that's not usually my attitude I'm usually very like hard on myself and stuff I would I'm never the kind of comic, comic who comes off stage who's like oh I smashed that I ripped that I'm always very <laughs> like it's not really my style to be like that but I came off at this competition final and I was like I deserve to be in the top three and I didn't place and I remember yeah. being really annoyed about it and I was like well why have I put myself through this like I was on such a high to be in the BBC comedy final and yeah. but like I really ruined it for myself that was the January and then six seven months later in the august i got the best newcomer nomination yeah. and it really put things into perspective for us and i was like god as a new act you're kind of made to feel like these competitions are the be all and end all but really what i should have been doing is focusing on what the next step was which was right in an hour and that mm -hmm. obviously turned out to be something don't want to brag but <laughs> pretty good at writing an hour 
two of my three hours I've got Edinburgh Comedy Award nominations (laughs) which I think is quite good um quite a good percentage rate in there yeah so you're talking about I think Lady Muck yes sold out run yeah oh it was bizarre bizarre because I knew I had a good show I was confident in my show I was happy with it but I think there's this sort of divide between circuit comics and London slash Soho slash fringe comics. Hmm. And as someone who grafted the circuit, I'd moved to London by this point, but I still never felt in that little London inner circle, in that cool group. That was never me. Hmm. And I still felt I was very much a circuit comic, but I didn't care. I was like, well, I don't care. Like, I want to be a comedian. And if my income is going to come from the circuit, then you know I want to be a circuit comic. I need to be a circuit comic. But I kind of knew or maybe not necessarily knew, but had believed a lot of other comics who said, oh, you know, the circuit comics don't get the recognition in Edinburgh, blah, 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 it's all biased, all this. <laughs> so in my head, I was like, well, I know I've got a good show. Hmm. I know the audiences will like it, but I'm not the kind of comic who's going to get the industry nods and the industry recognition because I'm a circuit comic, like, you know, and that's maybe looked down on a little bit or not held to as high a pedigree by certain people. <laughs> and then I remember... I think the first preview was obviously the Wednesday of Thursday mm-hmm. and we had a paper quite a lot of those just get some bums in but I was like I, I wasn't expecting the sellout run I had I think three goals for that festival I wanted to sell out me weekends mm-hmm. I wanted to get one four-star review that might be it actually so I felt like they were quite achievable achievable yeah. things to aim for um so the Wednesday Thursday were previews they were quite quiet I remember having <laughs> busy friday saturday they might have sold out i can't remember hmm. sunday didn't sell out the monday did because that was the first two for one day and i was like well you know what after a good start your first weekend's like sold out and yeah your previews were quiet but they were previews and now you're into two for one days and you're gonna be fine lauren and my pr had said when do you want reviewers in and i was like well, day one like why not send them in because i think again there's sort of two camps of comics there's the people who go up with a show ready and yeah. they appreciate their show will probably improve over the month, but day one it is fringe ready. And I think there's other people who sort of work it out as they go along. But I've always been in the mindset, mm. my audiences are paying the same ticket price, whether they come on day one or day 21. Yeah. So I don't want to take a show on day one that I am not confident and happy to perform to a paying audience. So I think I had my first review in somewhere across that first weekend but again I didn't know I was like don't tell us when they're coming in but I'm fine for them to come in I think it was that first Monday I got the first five-star review from the list so suddenly (laughs) I was a bit like whoa smashed me goal of getting one four-star review I was like it's my first ever review of an hour it's five-star and I think because it was so early in the festival the list gave it this big fanfare of like first (laughs) five-star review of the fringe and it's and from that moment I almost felt everyone's head go and like turn to look at us. And I think that show sold out that day. I'm guessing off the back of that review. And then I was watching because I didn't have access to my sales report. I wasn't allowed to see my sales report, which I found baffling. I was like, "Mm, it's kind of me who's spending thousands to be here. Um, And I remember like going on the Fringe website and then suddenly like the the following day show was red. You know, when the square goes red to say it's sold out. And I was like, oh my God, I've sold out a show in advance and then over the course of the next few days I was watching those red squares grow and I was like oh my god I've gone from selling out so the Monday obviously sold out on the day and Mm. then say the Tuesday 
sold out on the day but then Wednesday sold out in advance and then Thursday sold out too and it was like that you know where shows were starting to sell out on the day then sell out in advance and then sell out and I remember I got to the halfway point and I was in one of the bars with uh, Tom Horton who was also having a lovely fringe and I opened up the fringe website and every square was red and I was like I've done it I've sold it out like oh my god (laughs) and I couldn't have got this picture me and him and I just look absolutely buzzing because I'd (laughs) my goal was to sell out like a weekend and I was like I've sold out the whole thing halfway through and it was one of those just other people have said it to us as well where like yours was the fringe run that debut acts dream of Mm. and I was like it was it really was but I I handled it very well I think I wasn't going out I wasn't getting pissed I wasn't getting swept up in that bubble that I think is very easy to get swept up in um I stayed, I, I, did, I think I only had like one or two nights out. So I wasn't hearing people go, you're going to get nominated, you're going to get nominated, you're going to get, I wasn't hearing any of that. I was seeing right. the nights reviews coming in and going on the poster. I was seeing the full rooms and I was like, this is the most important thing. Because all I could think in my head was Louisa Omelin. Love right. Louisa Omelin. Seen all of our shows, never got recognised with a, a Fringe nomination. So mm. I was sort of quietly telling myself, do not fixate on getting nominated because the important things have happened. You've sold it out. Audiences are enjoying it. You're getting the nice reviews to go on your poster. Yeah. Incredible people before you and after you have had incredible fringe runs and not got nominated. So don't fix yeah. it. So I didn't even think about it. And then my agent at the time, she took me out for breakfast on what I now know was nominations day, but this is how far mm. removed I was from it. I'd forgotten it was nominations day. <laughs> so I just sat having breakfast and then her phone rang and she went off to answer it. And she came back and she was like, you've got the nomination. And I was like, oh, is that why you brought me for breakfast? And like, <laughs> in case I got the phone call. And she was like, yes, Lauren. Like, she obviously, I think she was probably expecting it more than I was. But again, I think that was brilliant because everybody was like, but you must have known you were going to get nominated. And I was like, but there's fantastic shows before yeah. me and after me that haven't got nominated. And that's what I tell any act debuting. I'm like, it's of course it's impossible to not think about the nomination i was like yeah. but don't make it the be all and end all because yeah. you can have a fantastic fringe run and not get nominated like it's yeah, yeah. so yeah. i think i i think i had the right mindset <laughs> yeah you approach your comedy it seems to me with a, a, a lot of um humility like low expect you set low expectations yeah. for yourself do you do you surprise yourself when you exceed your expectations oh definitely i always think it's better to sort of not put I talk about that in this year's show about how, so I was like a gifted and talented kid. And I always felt through education, a lot of pressure to to Mm -hmm. be perfect, if you know what I mean. So I was the kind of kid who, (laughs) if you weren't this kind of kid, you hated this kind of kid. If I didn't (laughs) get an A, I saw it as a failure. Like that, my GCSE results, I got something like 12 or eight A stars, four A's and one B. Was (laughs) I happy with that? No, because I was like, I got one B. Oh my God. Same me A levels. I got A star, A, B. And rather than being like, eh, A star, A, I was like, if only, if only I tried a little bit harder, I could have got A star, A, A. Now I look back and I'm like, yeah. I hope my kid never feels, and this this isn't me, this wasn't me parents putting the pressure on us, absolutely, in case anyone's like, mm, there's like horrible parents. Absolutely not. They loved us no matter what. But I just think when you're in that sort of environment of, oh, you have to do well, you have to do well. And I think I sort of carried that even when I went to university. I had to start unpicking this of being like, you don't have to be perfect to be good at something. Like, don't put so much pressure on yourself. So when I started comedy, I think that's why I really tried to like 
manage my expectations and be like you can do really well without sort of achieving this this and this like of course they're brilliant things to do but if you don't get those mm. doesn't mean because I remember once being really upset that the only sort of big comedy competition I'd not got to the final of or been considered for was Leicester Mercury mm. and that's the one where obviously you don't audition for it you're picked by other promoters and I yeah. think it was 2016 I knew I was debuting 2017 so I was like this is probably the last year I'm going to be eligible for it and I was like fuck I work so hard and I gig all over and surely surely someone's gonna acknowledge that and recognize that and I remember seeing the nominations come out and being like ah, and I was really disappointed and I have, have a word with myself and be like but Lauren look how many people haven't been nominated for the Leicester Mercury and yeah. have still done well like these things are bonuses and mm. I think I've really tried hard to just sort of take some of the pressure off myself and be like yeah yeah you can do it you can do it <laughs> <laughs> but again this this sort of meteoric rise <laughs> it just seems that uh, you know you go into university at the same time you start comedy you come out of university and you're writing shows and you're doing tour support for people you've seen on the tv people like Catherine Ryan yeah absolutely that must have been quite the change from doing a Newcastle stand to opening at theatres oh definitely and I was just on about yeah. this I was at Newcastle stand last night and I was saying how um so on Monday I went back to my old university and did like a stand-up workshop for them and I said it was very surreal because the mm -hmm. room I was in doing that workshop the room opposite when I was in my final year of uni 21 final term of university I think it was about May time I was in a class one day and I got a direct message from Catherine Ryan and she was like, how much material have you got? And she'd seen me, she'd hosted the Funny Women Awards right. like eight months prior, this six months prior. So obviously that's where she'd seen us. And she was like, how much material have you got? And straight away I thought, don't say you've only got 10 to 15 minutes because <laughs> whatever she's asking for might be more than that. So don't talk yourself out of whatever she's offering before she's even offered it. So I said how much are you needing and what is it for? And she was like, I need someone who's got about 20 minutes to do some tour support for me. I think it was Carlisle or Middlesbrough. I did Carlisle and Middlesbrough, but I think Carlisle was the first offer. Mm -hmm. She was like, that's not too far from you, is it? Didn't even look at a map. And I was like, yeah, of course, that's not far. <laughs> Didn't have, had never done a 20 minute spot before, but I thought I am not letting this opportunity pass me by. I thought mm. I've got a really good 15 minutes. I'll just do that a bit slower. Um, <laughs> un until I've got 20 sort of thing. So I went and did that too, I support for her. And I was telling these kids, I say kids, that's really disrespectful. I was telling the students on Monday, I was like, I was literally sat in that room, like 10, well, not 10 years ago, because I started 10 years ago. I was like, but seven years ago when I got that like, um, that message. And I was like, it's a very surreal moment to come back as like a fully grown adult sort of thing and be like, God, how much has changed since I sat in that room lying about having 20 minutes of material. <laughs> but I remember going and doing that gig for Catherine and loving it. I had a fantastic gig. It was my first real sort of like shot at supporting someone like very well known. Yeah. And then I think she offered me Middlesbrough off the back of that. And then I bumped into her at Latitude Festival that summer. And she was like, oh, yeah, I'm going on tour again. We'll definitely have to have you in. And just it, it opened so many doors for us. And I thought, God, if I'd, if I'd said, I think maybe if I'd said I've got 15, she probably still would have given us the shot and been like, you know, just, just do it a bit slower, which is what I did. <laughs> but I thought, he like, it is just true how like one opportunity, because I ended up getting set. My first agent was um, United, who she's with. 
Um, and I, I swear I got signed to them off the back of doing stuff with her, which I don't know for definite, but it seems pretty logical that not long after I did the tour support for her, I got signed to their agency because that probably put me on their radar. Yeah. And it is just sometimes all kind of proves to me that in comedy, sometimes all you need is someone to open the door for you. Yeah. And I, I do still feel this 10 years on that sometimes I can bang, 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 bang on the door as loud as I want. But sometimes all you need is someone to let you in and someone to give you a shot to prove yourself. And I'm yeah. very, very grateful still seven years on from that first support gig for her that she gave me like a shot and she let me she yeah. let me in front of her audience. I did my first sort of like proper tour. I'm doing my first sort of proper tour. Um, and I went to, was it Salford? Yeah, Salford Lowry. Salford Lowry was my first like tour date. And I had people come to see me there who saw me support Catherine in the big room at Salford Lowry, probably about five years ago, six years ago. And I had audience tweeting as being like, it was quite a full circle moment for us that, you know, we first were introduced to you through <laughs> tour support at Salford Lowry. And now you're doing your own show. And I was like, it is very surreal at times to be like, you do sort of see it can be very hard, I think, sometimes in comedy and not see the fruits of your effort. And right, then sort yeah. of you, you get yourself in situations like that and you're like, oh, no, I have. I have progressed and I have improved. And, like, I am seeing benefits. Just sometimes you have to stop looking at what other people are doing and comparing yourself to what they've done and be like, but look yeah. at what I've done. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you've got a CV to be proud of. <laughs> oh, definitely. So tell me about your the latest show. It is what it is, which I saw you perform at the Monkey Barrel. Oh yes, fantastic show! Thank Lot, you very lots much. Lots of going on in there. Oh god, I know it was quite a quite a jam packed <laughs> show. Definitely, that probably should have should have been more than an hour. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah, tell me what's it about? How did you come to write it? I, I, I saw a, a comment on a Guardian review of the show because obviously it's a show that is technically about the pandemic because it's about mm -hmm. the last two years of my life I can't I'm a storytelling comedian I talk yes. about my life so it's it's very difficult for me to write a show or it, it was difficult for me to write a show in 2022 that didn't at least acknowledge the mm. pandemic because everything that has happened to me in the last two years is because of the pandemic but I was trying very hard to make it clear to the audiences I was like I'm kind of going to address the pandemic because none of this would have happened. If I had just come out and started doing material about working at Morrison's, people would have been like, why is she working at Morrison's? Like, <laughs> she was a full-time successful comedian. Why is she working at Morrison's? Obviously, I had to go to Morrison's because of the pandemic. So I tried to make this dead clear in the show. I was like, of course, at times I'm going to touch on the pandemic because none of this would have happened without the pandemic. That's sort of like the catalyst for everything happening. And I was like, but it's not a show about COVID. It's not a show about the pandemic. It's a show about putting your life back together. It's a show yeah. about dealing with the hand of cards um, you've been dealt sort of thing. And then I didn't read the actual Garden Review, but I just went to the comment section, which I don't normally do. For the last like four years, I did my first bit of telly in 2018, read the comment section and cried um, and decided I would never read the comment section again. And I've stuck to that until this year. <laughs> I was really curious. I was like, I don't want to slag off the Guardian or their readers, but I thought that's the only sort of review that had been posted that had like a comment section. So right. I don't know what was said in the review to garner this reply, but someone had written, oh, is there any comedian who didn't just talk about the pandemic and make it about them or something like that, <laughs> like words to that effect. And I was like, mm. well, if you came to see the show, you would know 
it's not really about the pandemic. I just yeah. kind of acknowledge that these things happened because of it. And I'm sure they said something about making it about them. And I was like, I'm a comedian. I make everything about me. Yeah. Like, that's literally, <laughs> it's literally my job. Um, but yeah, I kind of sort of open up the show by saying it, it's like about the last two years of my life and how literally sort of like March 2020, obviously pandemic happened, lost all my comedy, broke up with long-term boyfriend, moved back to Newcastle, had to move into my childhood bedroom because I'd been living, you know, in London for the last four years, two of those with a partner. So suddenly I'm back in my childhood bedroom in Newcastle, first time living at home since I was 18, so the first time in eight years. I don't have a job anymore. I don't have a relationship. And it's about going, how do I get through this? Like, I've been dealt quite a shitty hand of cards and so did a lot of people, but how do I make the best of this? How do I get through this? And that's, that sort of formed yeah. the show sort of thing. And it allowed us to talk about like um, sort of like going back to work and going back to day jobs, but then also make a point about how that's nothing to be ashamed of. Cause I do yeah. think I say it in the show, there's this weird sense of shame. If you work in the arts, if you're not full time, then people are like, I say you're not a proper comedian. And it's like, no, no, I am. But obviously how good you are is a huge thing in being able to go full time. Like, you know, yeah of course it's a factor but there's also other factors so and I don't want to bang on about it too much but of course if your parents are paying your rent Mm. and you don't have that financial responsibility you are going to be able to go full-time quicker where you know I mean or if you're still living at home or if you're doing this or doing that if you're a single man who's got a child to support you're probably going to go full-time a little bit later because you've got like another human to support if you're Mm -hmm. a carer or if you've got just any form of kids or responsibilities you're probably going to cling on to that day job for a bit longer you know what I mean and so that's why I really tried to make the point I was like of course how good you are affects when you sort of make that jump to full-time but it's Mm -hmm. not the only factor there are so many other factors so please don't feel like ashamed if you've got a day job or I remember I'm not going to name names but watching somebody go full-time very quickly very very quickly and this was at a time when I was like struggling in London and I think I I named them to somebody and I went you know I look at them and they've done it they've gone full-time like what am I doing wrong and I think this is the mindset and I know I'm not the only comedian I thought I was doing something wrong because I hadn't Mm. left my day job yet and then they explained this person was very financially supported by their parents and I was like Oh, I'd never, I'd never considered as an adult who wasn't financially <laughs> supported by our parents. I'd never considered yeah. that there were adults who, adults who were still getting their rent paid, sort of thing. Yeah. Like obviously now <laughs> I know that's relatively common, but as someone who moved out at eighteen, went into halls of residence, paid our own rent, then spent yeah. the next three years in house shares paying our own rent, working day jobs to pay that rent and support comedy, I moved to London at twenty-two again, paying my own rent, and I was like. Wow. Yeah. Some people get their rent paid. Like what? Like it just never crossed my mind. And that sort of calmed us down a bit. And I was like, well, yeah, of course, if I've got the financial burden of having to pay 750 quid out of whatever I earn, of course, I'm not going to be able to take that plunge as quickly as someone who's supported. So I try and make that point in the show without also making it sound like I'm slagging off (laughs) anyone who is privileged. Because of course, if I was in a position where I could help my child, I'd help my child. And if I was in a position where I could be helped, absolutely of course I'd take it so I try and make it very clear I don't begrudge anyone who's been handed like you know a fast pass or anyone who's had a leg up I was like but please remember that not everyone gets that and if you're not getting that it doesn't mean you're a failure it doesn't mean you're not as good it just means maybe you've got to and it is the working class comics you've got to graft that little bit harder for that little bit longer but it's worth it 
it's so worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you talk about themes like being working class, being from the north, but also as we've talked about, you've got this focus in this this uh, this uh, achiever uh, ethos. I mean, yes, is it important to you to talk about those themes in your in your comedy? Are you trying to put them? the message across are you sort of thinking I'm a working class hero and everyone needs to know it well that's the thing I used to never talk about class and comedy never 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 and I think the 2017 show I made maybe one little throwaway joke about it hmm. I think the 2018 show I think maybe I had a couple of jokes but but still not much and I think I was because it is a very middle class dominated industry hmm. and you worry if you talk about these things people think you're attacking them right and it's like no 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 but I'm not attacking you you I'm just holding a magnifying glass up to the situation and being like please can we appreciate that it's not this easy for not everyone has their rent paid not everyone has a parent who's got who's well connected and can like you know sort you out that way all these all these kind of little things like don't even consider like when you come from like this sort of background but then this especially off the back of the pandemic and about going back to work and briefly feeling like a failure and at times when I was back to work because it's not like I just went to work in a supermarket for six weeks and was like oh oh guys I'm such a hero I went (laughs) I worked for the full two years of the pandemic I only left my last day job in April and Mm. I didn't leave it because I could afford to I left it because I knew I wasn't going to be able to juggle preparing for Edinburgh and Mm. the show I was fully expecting to have to go back to a day job in September and I just thought if there's ever a time to really talk about the importance or to be very transparent about class, it's coming out the back of a pandemic when, you know, I, I, I had to go back to work. So I had someone the other day being like, but you could have just stayed at your parents rent free. And I was like, that's not my vibe. Mm-hmm. I went because one, we didn't know how long it was going to last. I went and say if I did just sit in my parents house, twiddling me thumbs for two years when the world reopened again. How would I have had the money to support myself in comedy? How would I have had the money to move out? You know what I mean? I was like, I I had to support. My goal wasn't to be like, oh, well, I need to get a day job so that, like, you know, and took some money away for comedy. It was, I've had to move back home for the first time in eight years. I don't want to be living at home. I don't want to be a burden to my parents at all. So I, my goal first and foremost, and I talked about this in the show, was to move out and get me independence back. And I thought, well, to do that, I need a day job. There's no shame in that. And then yeah. the more I started, like, sort of bringing in and getting me independence back, that's when I was like, hang on, this is now in my favor. Because when sort of like the world started to open in 2021 and I was getting gig offers, I thought, well, now I've got the money to get the train to this gig or pay for a hotel to this gig because I've yeah. worked for the last year and I've been able to sort of, build up a little nest of money to me. And if I hadn't done that, say if I'd got a last minute email being like, oh, Lauren, got a gig in Manchester tomorrow, how would I have paid for the train and how would I have paid for the hotel if I hadn't have been working to support myself? Mm. And I thought it's really important as a working class comic to be very transparent about that and make it clear that it is fine to have a day job and you are not a failure, you're not doing anything wrong. Because there was times I sat on that till in Morrison's and I was like, I'll admit it, I was jealous. I'll admit I was jealous. I'll hold my hands up. I don't think jealousy is always a negative emotion. But there was times where I sat and I thought, well, they haven't had to go back to work. They haven't had to go back to work. They haven't had to go back to work. They haven't had to go. And it was starting to really eat us up. And I was like, well, maybe I'm not good enough because I've not, like, I've had to go back to work and this and that and that. And then I was like, no, no. And if you're feeling like this, Lauren, I was like, how many other comics who've had to go back to their day job or maybe haven't even been in a position to leave their day job 
how many other people must be feeling like this? And that's why I was like, from everyone was like, you were so open and honest about going back to work. And I was like, yeah. yes, because I wanted people to know it's normal and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And yeah. I tried to basically take ownership of it so that if anyone tried to be like, oh, you know, someone did again, I contributed to an article about going back to day jobs. And someone was like, well, maybe if she'd worked a bit harder, she wouldn't have. And I was like, I don't think you understand mm. comedy and the world, to be perfectly yeah. honest, because uh, yes, just very stressed. But I was like, it's so important to be. And I don't see myself as like, working class hero but I see myself as someone who's very much not afraid to point that out because I still think the biggest biggest hurdle in comedy in terms of diversity is class I really do and I do feel like it's the one that people still feel icky talking about um because for a lot of people it means sort of going oh yeah well I have really benefited from privilege and hmm. I remember someone once saying so you think middle class comics are, have only succeeded because they're middle class and I'm like no I'm not saying that at all I don't doubt that they would have got there eventually what I'm saying is some people's road to success hmm. is a bit smoother and a bit hurdle has a, has a few less hurdles along the way and yeah. <laughs> I remember someone once saying it was as well well that's true in all walks of life not just comedy and I was like I never said it was I went, <laughs> of, course, of course it's true in all walks of life but yeah. I'm speaking about it through the lens of comedy. Yeah. And it, it felt like someone was trying to like imply that my point was invalid because it's true for everything. And I was like, that is still a problem. Like, of yeah. course, that is still a problem. But I do think class is such a hurdle. And even like, obviously, I spoke in the show about not wanting to live in London. Yeah. And I, I don't think there should be any shame in that. And I, I appreciate there's benefits to living in London. London but I think in this day and age there's no excuse for somebody to expect you to come down to London just so they can see you with a gig when they could watch a five minute clip of you at a gig you know what I mean or or maybe that person who works for a really like expensive company could come and see you at a gig and travel and um and I find it baffling that I talked about this in the show and I'm still getting people going so do you want to come down to London for a meeting like we're we're not going to pay you and we're not going to pay your travel we'd actually like you to spend a hundred pounds of your own money to come and have a meeting and I'm like did did you see me show did you see me show that you said you really loved because could this not be a Zoom? Like, could this? And I appreciate, of course, I'm not saying I never want to go to London. I'll go to London when there's work and when I need to be there. But I think there is, I've heard like stories of, I'm going to try and be very careful here so I don't give away people and programs. I've heard (laughs) many stories about comedians who've been asked to be seen for certain comedy programs. And again, they're expected to travel to London at their own expense just to be seen and then don't get booked and it's like and I've had that before where I've like traveled and just to do like a a tryout for a a panel show or something and you just think there must be a different way of doing this where working class comics and comics who live outside of London aren't penalized for not living there like because I felt pressured to move there and that's why I went there and a lot of people are like oh when you hated London you slag off London and I said all along I think if I had money and I was more financially comfortable, would have loved it, would have absolutely loved it. But because I had this constant worry about money and I wasn't earning much, so I was only able to rent what I affectionately call (laughs) shitholes. My my final flat I lived in in London, we had mice in the walls. um, And that was really pushing me to a breakdown. And I said, I'm sure if I had money, I would love London. I went, but I think what was difficult for me was I didn't have any money. I wasn't living in nice places. I was just Mm. constantly under financial pressure. I'm not saying I'm 
like loaded now, but I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more comfortable than I was. Yeah. So I think if, say, if I had to move to London for six months a year now, I wouldn't be thrilled. I like my <laughs> flat. I like Newcastle, <laughs> but I think I could do it and enjoy it more than I did. And I was like, it's not that I hated London. I hated the constant financial pressure I was under, like yeah. really. And I just felt so pressured to be there. And again, that's why I kind of touch on these things in the show because I'm like, there's no excuse really for for pressuring people to move it. And if you yeah. want to, move, I know people who've moved and love it. Great, good for them. But I also know people who are feeling the, like pressured to move, and I'm like, but I don't, I don't yeah. want to move. I don't. I want to own a house. And I think that's <laughs> the thing. You, you shouldn't be put in the position where you're like, right, I have to move to London or I won't have a career, or I can buy a house and have like the, the personal life I want. You shouldn't yeah. have to choose between like the two. I don't think. Like if I'd stayed in London. Like, oh, I, I don't know. I think it maybe things would have changed by now with like this nomination and stuff. But yeah, I think what really relaxed me was moving back to Newcastle and the financial pressure being lifted a little bit. And yeah. I think that then had a positive impact on my mental health, which then meant I was approaching my career in a different way. And I yeah. do think I don't know if I would be in this position if I hadn't left London, which is very there is yeah. a pressure to be there. And I just I want to see that change because, again, I think it disproportionately affects working class acts because they're the ones who are going to struggle to pay seven billion pounds rent a month. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you mentioned mental health there, so there's a couple of things I want to ask you. Um, first of all, you talked about all the changes that came to you from from the pandemic, and it's no getting away from it. We are going to talk about the pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what I was wondering with the with the change in in your home situation, your partnership, etc. Yeah. How far was all these changes mitigated by the fact that you're a comedian and by comedy and your sense of humour? I mean, I've heard you say about um, in Morrison's, as you mentioned, writing jokes and ideas yeah. on the back of the till rock. I've always been the kind of person who is like jot down ideas as you have them yeah. and so when I was working at Morrison's I said there was times where I thought this this is over for me this is absolutely over yeah. like I was watching people um sort of still get really nice up and I've got you know I got to do that stand up for BBC um mm -hmm. which was really nice and I was really grateful for but again like I think that came through like maybe four or five days before it filmed and I was like I've got to shift at work my role has been done and again <laughs> this is this is kind of what affects comics with day jobs. And obviously I know it's not just working class comics who've got day jobs, but definitely comics who have got day jobs and need those day jobs. I thought, yeah. oh God, well, I've, I've got a shift at work, but I can't. So I had to like negotiate like shift swaps. So I could go and do this like filming. But I was like at times just thinking, God, this is never going to come back. But mm. I would jot down little ideas for jokes to tell on Zoom gigs to sort of yeah. keep myself more of it and keep myself feeling like a comedian because... I think this is the difference with comics who went back to work in the lockdown and those who didn't. Is I, I think to a certain extent, they will have at times stopped feeling like a comedian. But yeah. Because I had a, another job role, I was like, well, I, I have stopped being a comedian because I am uh, I'm, I'm making fry-ups in a cafe for minimum wage and I'm scanning through people's shopping, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas I think if you didn't get a day job, at least you could almost still cling on to the, no, but I am. I am a comedian because I'm not doing I'm not not doing anything else. I, I am a comedian. Mm -hmm. But I think because I had gone back to like 
a job, I was like, it's gone. It's gone. Like, I'm not a comedian anymore. I'm never going to be a comedian anymore. So it was really important for me to do that. I keep motivated. And then mm. even after the supermarket, I went to a restaurant and see him on my little waiters pads, my check pads. I would jot down little ideas for it and little <laughs> jokes. And I, I just thought I need to keep in my mind that I am still a comedian yeah. or I'll just not give up. But you know what I mean? I think it would have been very easy for us to sort of think it was all over and I was like you need you need yeah. to remind yourself and I've sort of now slightly rephrased it on stage when I talk about that about writing things on till receipts I was like <laughs> I said how I had, didn't feel like a comedian anymore and then the penny dropped and I was like no I am still a comedian I'm just a comedian who right now doesn't have a stage and doesn't have an audience but one day I will have that stage again and I will have that audience and that's what I had to keep telling myself I was like you are a comedian you just yeah. don't have a stage at the minute you just don't have a stage but once you get back on that stage you are a comedian. It was very, very mm. important. I reminded myself of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, also on the subject of mental health, before the pandemic struck, you were doing um, with uh, Aaron Gillies, you were doing oh, yeah. the podcast, Conversations yes. Against Living Miserably. Yes, I loved that. Absolutely loved it. I can, you can hear your zeal in the episodes. It's, you're, yes. you know, <laughs> clearly you're enthused about doing it. I, I want to ask about how that was, but the one thing that struck me was, of course, that, that started before the pandemic and it must have mm-hmm. really felt like it made it made it a change when oh, suddenly definitely. you know suddenly all this new information is coming through I mean how was Absolutely. how was that so I, I loved doing it I'd never had like an opportunity like that before and for me it really sparked an interest in podcasts and maybe having my own podcast one day or maybe trying mm-hmm. to co-host something and then um maybe stepping into like presenting or radio and that was a real again just proves what happens when you get given an opportunity it's sort of yeah. switch this little switch in my head and I was like oh I think I might maybe like to do something like this one day I do more hosting or presenting but I love doing it and as well it for me was just very healthy to once a week or a couple of times a week to sit and just chat about mental health and everything felt, yeah. felt very like normalized and it made me feel better about my own it made me more open as well and I really loved doing them the very first one we did was with Stu Goldsmith but that didn't yes. get broadcast as episode one and I think you can tell yeah. when you listen to that one <laughs> in comparison to the others that first one I'm like I don't really know what I'm doing and am I a co-host or am I like sort of a, a second guest I don't I don't really know what my voice is here compare that to the other ones where you can tell I'm just fully like relaxed I loved it and then we did a few specials in the lockdown mm. which again I think were very beneficial and very useful and I did this thing for one of them where I wrote myself a letter uh, this must have been in about maybe about the May time or the April and mm-hmm. I wrote myself a letter looking back a month ago being like what would you tell yourself a month ago? Because obviously I remember everything fell apart in the space of hours. Like I talk about this in the show. I'm like, it's not like everything crumbled over the course of several months. It was literally, you know, the first two weeks of the lockdown was a bit like blissful ignorance. And then boyfriend broke up with us, started, which then made us realize I wasn't going to move back to London. And I was kind of, I don't want to use the term stuck at home because that sounds like I don't like my parents, but I'm sure if you've lived out of home for eight years and then find yourself back in your childhood bedroom, Mm. losing your independence makes you feel a bit worthless. I'd I'd lost my independence, lost my relationship. And then the day after that was the day the fringe officially got cancelled. So I knew I no longer had the fringe. 
all the gig cancellations started coming in around this time because people had sort of just cancelled the first like month of gigs. Yeah. And then after that fringe announcement, it was like a domino effect where I think people realised this isn't going anytime soon. Mm. Um, I can't remember what my original point was. What was I talking about? <laughs> the podcast. The podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously I was like really struck, like it was a lot to mentally deal with. Mm. And then... And I think this is probably how the show ended up coming about. Once I got that sort of like when when they said we were going to do a couple of COVID specials, I was like, I think it would be really beneficial for me as someone with, I know I've not got a huge platform, but a little bit of a platform to talk about my experiences and to maybe try, don't mean to brag, but I think I'm quite good with words. And I wrote this letter <laughs> and I, I read it on the podcast. And I got so many like nice messages about it. And I was like, but again, it's like, it made us realize how important it is to use your voice and to not shy away from topics that matter to you. And I think that's, again, what was the triggering point for me to be like, you should be talking about being working class. Why are you letting other people feel like you can't talk about being working class in comedy? Because that's how we silence these discussions. If if you're being told by the people with the power and the people with the privilege, oh, you can't be talking about that. Oh, you're jealous, you're this, you're that, you're this. You start to go, oh, well, I don't want people to think I'm jealous. I don't want people to think I'm bitter, so I'll just not talk about it. And mm. that's how they win. And yeah. that's how nothing changes because you're made to feel like you can't talk about it. And I guess I was a little bit like that with mental health as well. People are like, oh, she's jumping on a bandwagon, oh, this, oh, that. And that podcast for me was the real turning point for talk about what matters to you and use your voice to like, mm. And, and that's how you find your audience. And I don't know which day you came in the fringe, but I think you'll probably agree with this. I fully believe I have found my audience. Like oh, I think yeah, the people 100%. who come now kind of know what, even if they've not seen us before live, they, they might follow us on social media. Hmm. They know what they're going to get. And I think the stand-up I do very much reflects everything else I put out there, whether it's what I talk about on podcasts, whether it's how I present myself on social media. Hmm. I'm like, yeah. I'm very grateful for that podcast for helping us find my voice, definitely. Yeah. Well, you're no stranger to podcasts. I mean, you mentioned uh, Stuart Goldsmith, and then he interviewed you recently as well. I found girls <laughs> so hard, right? Because <laughs> don't know if don't know if you might ever hear this, so I'll tread carefully. I'm not slagging them off. I can't clarify that enough. But I did <laughs> Richard Heron's podcast. Yeah. And getting asked to do that was so cool because I was like, oh my God, that's a... to me, there's certain podcasts that, you know, are like almost like comedy royalty. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, I've been on like Rahalista Put, like this is amazing. <laughs> and then I did Adam Buxton's. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I've done Adam Buxton's. And I was like, the one that was missing for me in the holy trifecta was ComCom Pods. <laughs> that was the one. And I was like, I'm in the group on Facebook as well. And every now and then I'll comment and be like, should I be commenting? Because I'm a comedian. And I was like, no, but I'm commenting as a fan and as a comedy fan, I'm not commenting like as a comic. Um, and I, every now and then I'll see and be like, you know, suggestions for guests and when you're like, please someone see me. I, I can't put myself <laughs> forward. That looks really cringe. And then, um, yeah, he got in touch after Red and Brown. I was like, thank God. I have <laughs> been dying to just complete my little holy trinity of Richard Heron, Adam Buxton, Stu Goldsmith. So I was really, really buzzing. Like... <laughs> which I know was probably like quite cringy to admit, but I was like, I just want to be on it. Yes. I was very, very happy. Yeah. Well, I think that one's, I'm not sure if that one's out yet, but it might, it'll be out by the time this comes out. If it's not. Already. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. And of course other comedy royalty, the horn section you've done there. Yes. Podcast, oh my God. Pit, and I, you've done that. I got to go to the, the taskmaster house for that one. Oh, and man. that was so cool because I was just <laughs> sat in the taskmaster house and I was like, can I be on this? 
<laughs> yeah why haven't you been on it yet what's happening oh my god i would i think that's well i think it's the one show every comedian unanimously, unanimously wants to do yeah. but it's de- it is the one i would fucking love to do but i can't decide if i'd be really good at it because <laughs> i'm quite like like i say i'm quite focused and quite like driven and yeah. g- good at problem solving or if i would just cry constantly because <laughs> i do i do get overwhelmed quite easily and when i get overwhelmed it comes out like is, is emotion as me I'm a very like you know if I get panicky I start crying if I get stressed I start to cry like and uh, it's, a, it's a very weird thing because I always feel embarrassed for doing it and I'm like but it's just it's almost like my body gets so overwhelmed it just pushes tears out and I, was like, I don't know how much of the footage they'd be able to use if it was just me <laughs> crying while trying to land a drone on a pancake or whatever this week's uh, <laughs> challenge was <laughs> or I'd be really aggressive I think, you know, like how some people have gone and like their, their sort of inner anger has come out. Yeah. I don't know if I'd end up just being booting off at everything. I like to think no, because I'm not a very angry person, but maybe Taskmaster would um, bring out a demon in us or something. <laughs> it's almost like a fascinating social experiment to find out true nature of the individual. Yeah. How do they oh, actually Oh, I love react? it. I absolutely love it. It's just so, it's nice to watch comedians like, sort of out of their comfort zone and yeah. being able to use their comedic sort of talents <laughs> and personas in these very unique and interesting ways. I, yeah. I love it. I think it's brilliant TV, brilliant yeah. TV. I mean, it's my favourite show by far. I didn't know I was going to be talking about Taskmaster today, but it's, it's my favourite yeah. show by far. I absolutely love it. But it, it love brings it. me nicely into my next question, which is obviously you love Taskmaster. Do you watch others' comedy and can you yeah. see it as an audience member or do you analyse the jokes and where this they're going? This is the thing. I used to like devour like every panel show, yeah. every sort of comedy show on telly. To be honest, I don't really watch much telly full stop now. I'm one of these very much. I'm like, I watch like Netflix. Like yeah. I've, I've become <laughs> that person. So I don't really watch much like comedy and, other than Taskmaster. Yeah. I don't really watch much comedy on telly anymore, but I do still go and see a lot of live comedy. Yeah. Um, I'm always amazed by comics at the Fringe who are like, oh, don't go see any shows. I'm like, what do you do with yeah. your other 23 hours a day? <laughs> I go and see so much and I always pay for my tickets. Um, I never like tap people up. I want to support my yeah. friends and my colleagues. Um, like I said, I don't know when this will go out, but already so it's Thursday at the minute. I'm planning on going to see Kerry Pritchard-McLean on Saturday at the stand. Yeah. Uh, Elf Lyons is coming on Monday, so we think we're going to go see her as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I love going and see. Who did I see the other week? I'm sure I went to see someone else. Who did I go to see? Maybe I'm lying. I can't remember. But um, <laughs> I still, I still love live comedy. But yeah. I do think I watch it differently now. Right. I think it's impossible to turn off the comedian part of your brain. So I'll be watching it, and I'm already I know where it's going to go. And the yeah. best example of that, I'll not name who because I don't. This is this is my anxious brain being like it's always going to sound like I'm slagging someone off. Like, <laughs> not slagging this person off. They're one of my dearest friends in comedy, and I went to watch their friend show. It was fantastic. It was probably my favorite show, but I feel like I kind of ruined it for myself because that element of surprise was gone. Because yeah. as a comedian, I was thinking I can see where this is going. I can either see where this narrative is going, or I, can, oh, I think that's going to be a callback. I yeah. can see where this punchline's going. So you kind of spoil it for yourself, but you just can't switch it off as a comedian. Oh, um, Colin Hult was who I went to see. They ran a man. That's the other. I knew I'd been to see someone. Um, But yeah, I feel like you can't switch it off in your head and you're just always your comedian brain or you're sitting there going, oh, I would have done that. I wouldn't have used that punchline. I would have used this. Or 
oh, that's a great punchline, but I would have done this as a topper. I would have topped it with this. You could have taken that for, you kind of sit there like, like almost like a little director. And I was like, oh, I do. That's the one thing I miss from like before I did stand up or my first, I would say, mm. before I started doing hour long shows is I miss just being able to sit and watch comedy yeah. because I do feel like now I'm either working out where it's going or I'm, how would I have improved this sort of thing? <laughs> but not improved it, because it's not bad, but you know, I mean, how would I have added to this? Yes, yeah. it's very, I'm probably very annoying to watch comedy with, because I'm like, I know what they're going to do. I know what they're going to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a comedian, but I've seen so many shows that every now and then I sort of go, that's coming back. I know what they're going to exactly. do with that. I know yeah. where that's going. Yeah. You're like, that's a setup. That's definitely a setup. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw... Um, a comedian I won't name the comedian but I saw them do an interview but it was on on uh, Instagram oh, like an yeah. Insta live and mm-hmm. people were commenting and her husband made a comment in yeah. the comment and I was like straight that's a bit and then yeah, that's definitely absolutely. going into the show and two days later I saw her show and it came up and it just that was kind of for me because I knew where it had come from yes, it was kind of yeah, yeah. And I go, yep I knew that was going to be in the show. I knew that was coming, yeah. My boyfriend says he feels like he has to tread very carefully because he was like, I know that <laughs> everything has the potential to become material. And yeah. I was like, it does, but also, especially someone like him who is a huge, important part of my life. I'm like, I would never say anything you're not comfortable with. I was like, the people mm-hmm. who have to be more worried are the vague acquaintances <laughs> who yeah. I'm maybe <laughs> spending an occasional bit of time with and something might happen that I could use as comedy, but I don't value their friendship enough to ask their opinion on whether I use <laughs> I was like, they're the only people who have to be concerned because they're like, oh, well, I know I personally and know that there's a chance an interaction between us could end up being stand-up, but I also know we're not close enough that she's going to ask if I'm okay with it being <laughs> used. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, okay, so the show, it is what it is. Yeah. Where can we see you and where can we find out more about you and where you're going to be playing? I will have a few tour dates left. I'll have Liverpool, Nottingham and Leicester, which are mm-hmm. all in the first 10 days of November at various times. Um, yes. I've then got a run at Soho Theatre, the 7th till the 10th of December, mm-hmm. um, where I will be strongly rethinking how I talk about London in the show. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be trying to make it a lot clearer that my problem wasn't with London. It was with um, various other things um, that just happened to take place while I was in London. Snob, my problem wasn't necessarily London. It was I was skint and I think I was on the receiving end of a lot of snobbery because of being Northern and working class. And I'm going to try and make that clear before I alienate potentially a lot of people (laughs) that'll be fine um I think most people know that that's not what I'm doing um and then I've got one random tour date because I was meant to be at Cambridge Junction in October but because of the train strikes I couldn't Mm. get there and a couple of people were like oh could you not have gone down the day before and I was like do you know how expensive two nights (laughs) in Cambridge would have been like I I, technically I could have but I was like I would have then spent more money than what I was making so I thought it'd be just why is that a reschedule it so that's now rescheduled to january mm-hmm. the 7th or the 10th one of those days um yeah but you can follow me on twitter which is at lauren patterson instagram at lauren underscore patterson and my website is lauren dash patterson so um i've never made that connection in my head but maybe i should have just took one and stuck with it <laughs> than using every bit of punctuation I'll get it. I'll get a TikTok eventually and be like Lauren hashtag person. <laughs> like, 
but yes and uh, I'll, I'll be popping up on various gigs I'm trying to rely less on the live circuit for an income because it's quite stressful at the minute with travel and cost of living and all this but I yeah. I will always pop up at various various gigs round and about yeah and finally Lauren what is to you comedy in a nutshell comedy in a nutshell is about bringing people together for however long you're on stage um <laughs> and it should be for me about making them forget for five ten sixty minutes what's going on in their own lives like I think comedy should be a release and an escape and uh, I think in, in terms specifically of when I write an hour mm. I want people to come in for an hour sit back and just be entertained like so that yeah. they can leave and uh, the world is a bit of a shit place at the minute <laughs> and a stressful place and I just think comedy should relieve those stresses for just a little bit yeah. And then you sort of emerge back from whatever underground bunker you've been in and you're like, oh, no, the world is still, <laughs> it's still horrible. But you know what? For an hour together, we we felt really good. I think that's yeah. what it's about for me. Fantastic. Yeah. Lovely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. Take care. Thank See you, you soon. Bye.